Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to The Captain's Collective. On today's episode, we sit down with Jimmy Long from Homosassa Outfitters and talk about hospitality, guide associations, and how to get the most out of mentorships. Jimmy's been a captain for over 30 years and is a third-generation guide who is native to Homosassa. You will quickly see why many people call him the dinosaur. There's tons of great information in this podcast, and Jimmy is a real well of knowledge. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective. Success is a gift. Excellence is the only thing to strive for. Uh, he, he, he tried right. to eat it. He tried to eat it. Hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him. He got him. He's on it. Got uh, two butt caps off the rods, filled them with tequila. We took a shot and out we went. There, there ain't no getting into it after that. It's You're, you're hooked. It's a bad habit. And all the time, Flip's standing there ready to go for a tarpon. Anytime he says, you talk so much, you're like a senator. Do they call you dinosaur around here? Or you just call yourself dinosaur? Some of them do. A lot of them just call me Uncle Jimmy. (laughs) There you go. Uncle Jimmy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start calling you Dad. Nah. <laughs> calling him Daddy. There's a lot of people around here that call Jimmy Dad. Hey, Dad. <laughs> yeah, no, not that really, but there is a number of the guides that do call me. Younger guides call me Uncle Jimmy. Yeah, I'm like I said before. I'm the bridge between the old timers and the and the new guys, the young guns. Hey, Jimmy, thanks for coming on the podcast and hanging out with us today. As always, you've been really good to us and. We enjoy coming down here and hanging out with you. Could you just give us a little bit of an intro and how you got into fishing and guiding and what your story was? Well, I, uh, I'm a third generation guide, which was just pure coincidence. I did not have guiding in the plans when I got out of the service, I was doing some other stuff, but when I married my wife, her dad was a guide who actually guide guided with my grandfather. And they did a number of group trips together. And my father-in-law come to me and said, you know what? All the guys are getting a little older. We need some new blood, some younger blood. And that was 30 years ago. So I started guiding basically as an extra boat when needed. Didn't have a business card for probably three years. And then it kind of snowballed. And people started asking for my number. They wanted to go with me. You know, it wasn't just a group deal anymore. Finally got cards. And, and basically it's just kind of snowballed from there. I mean, I've, it's been a, you know, 30 years and it's been a good ride so far. And did you start fishing as a kid around here? Oh, I grew up fishing. I mean, where I lived, there was a canal behind the house. I mean, I wore out the brim and the bass and whatever else I could catch in the canal. You know, I grew up doing it. So it's just been something I've done. It's me. And was it your wife's? dad that kind of got you into guiding how did that relationship kind of come about well when Don and I got married um you know I loved to fish and she and I would go fishing and stuff like that but uh the my in-laws uh, my mother-in-law uh, was the manager at the Atlanta Fishing Club and like I was saying the, the all the guides the old timers they were all getting up in age and the club members came to my father-in-law 
and said, hey, we need some younger blood in here, you know. Nothing personal, but not only are the club members getting older, so are the guides. And my father-in-law told him, he's, my son-in-law's a fisherman. He's And at the time, I was actually doing some commercial fishing, um, not on a full-time basis, more, more or less part-time. But uh, he told me, he said, you get your captain's license, and I'll help you get a boat, and I'll help you get started. And, and that's what I was for like three years. I was just an extra when needed. And it, it, it snowballed. I mean, people liked me. I worked hard for them. You know, being polite, you know, just doing what you need to do as a guide every day, you know, and relationships build. And it just kind of went from there. And we talked to a lot of guys who uh, they all kind of enter in a little bit differently. But you, you started kind of part-time guiding as you would get these trips thrown your way and you could do the big group trips but what did it look like for you to switch in from this is something I'm doing part-time to going all in and, and doing it full-time? Well, it um, part-time guiding as an extra boat, that basically, you know, the group knows this guy's an extra. Uh, he does okay. He's catching fish. You know, the people like him. And then, you know, when you do a group trip, a lot of times people at the end of the day say, hey, have you got a card? Well, like I said, for the first three years, I didn't even have a card. So I got some cards, and I started developing relationships with people, even from the group trips. You know, I want to bring my family back, or I've got a buddy that wants to come. But I guided more or less in the peak trout and redfish times. You know, I literally would put my guide boat up the 1st of May because of my other business that I had at the time, and then I'd work concentrate you know 100% on the other business until October and then I'd go back you know when the trout was picking up and the redfish and all that and it got to where a lot of these people that fished on a group trip they may want to bring their family down during the summer and I, at first I started turning them down but when you turn them down and they go to another guide if they like that other guide they're gonna say hey this guy's available and this guy ain't mm -hmm. so if you want to develop and I call it not just a customer base, it's a relationship. And when you develop that, you need to take care of that. And if they want to go fishing in June, you take them. And it just, it got to the point. And with the other business things, you know, it dropped off and, and a little bit. And I kind of started leaning more towards the guiding. Number one, loving it. And number two, it just... You know, when you're on the water and you're looking out there and you're fishing, you know, 150, 160 plus days a year, you know, you can't beat that office. And you're not in the hustle and bustle of the concrete jungle. You know, you're out there on the water loving it. And even, you know, today I still love to get out there on the water. And I probably will for a few more years anyway. Talking about uh, those relationships you've built, I think that says a lot about uh, who you are, not only as a fisherman, uh, but as a person, I mean, kind of like, kind of like what you were saying, you know, you give, you give that client to another guy, there's a big chance he's not coming back to you. Oh yeah. Uh, and you, you know, and you got these guys saying, Hey, we'll throw, we'll throw Jimmy some clients knowing that if they fish with you, they're probably not coming back. I think that says a lot about who you were and, and the respect they had for you. And, and how did that, how did that look like for you? How did you build that relationship with those older with those older guides to 
to trust you enough to send people to you? Well, they, you know, whether you realize it or not, when you back in the day, you know, and I'm, I'm not an old timer, but you know, I'm these new younger guides that are getting in the business in a totally different way than I did. I worked with the old timers and believe it or not, they, they watch what you do. They see if you're respectful and polite to the, to the, to the customer whether it's somebody you know or it's a total stranger, you know, and I love to jo- joke around on the boat and have a good time. And then if, if they want to pick at me, they're going to get it back. You know, I'm going to give it back to them. But there's still always that level of respect that when they get in my boat, I'm working for them that day. And we can be the best of friends, but I'm still working for you that day. It's, uh, and my job is to, number one, fishing. Old timer told me one time, he said, listen, the first time somebody fishes with you is to catch fish. The next time is because they enjoyed fishing with you, you know, and I've got a number of clients. It's, it's not about the number of fish in the box. It's about how happy the kids or how much fun they had in their, for their experience for the day. And it's just, I don't think, and I've never, I've never really put emphasis an emphasis on a limit you know and in this area you know we have a very good fishery it's not hard to catch your limit matter of fact there's been times and certain times of the year and this happens anywhere you fish it's not well if i go out and catch my limit today it's like what time are we going to limit out today you know because the fishing is good you know it is the tides conducive for what i want to do for that day so it's just a matter of, you can call it public relations, you can call it whatever it is you want. The number one thing that bothers me about some guides is their ego. You know, they act like they're doing the client a favor. No, that's not true. That client, that customer, that whatever you want to call them for the day, did you a favor. And that's where you got you to keep, you know, you got to stay humble because don't matter how good a fisherman you are, if you don't treat your people right, they're not coming back. And we were talking a little bit. I mean, I know a lot of the guys around here call you Uncle Jimmy, but Josh and I call you the dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, you do have a good relationship with some of the older guides and you got a great relationship with younger guys. I mean, Josh and I are in our 20s and you know, you do well with both of those different groups. And I think there's something you could really speak to well is what are those older guys looking at? You talked about the older guys are watching. What are they looking at with younger guys? What are they looking for in them that, that we could live out to build good relationships? Well, the number one thing I think is getting back to customer relations. The older guys would look at, and, and I know they probably, I wouldn't be around or something, but they would ask, that particular angler in my boat that day, did you have a good time? You know, and the old guys knew it wasn't about how many fish you caught. It was, did they have a good time? And would you fish with him again? You know, there's going to be personalities that clash. Um, If somebody gets in my boat and they're very disrespectful to me and my equipment, I won't take them again, you know, because I work hard. I've got good equipment. I've got a nice boat. And I, it's clean. I mean, it's 
matter of fact, I picked up customers at the dock and one lady walked up. She says, your boat's the cleanest boat here, you know? And of course I got my buddy say, well, that's cause you don't get fish slime on it. No. When the fish slime gets on it, I get it off. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's, um, and the old timers, they do, they, they, they kept an eye on it and on, on me. And I wasn't just the only young guide at the time. There was some other ones and they, you know, on a shore lunch, for example, are you, are you one of the guys that jump in and help do the shore lunch? Or are you one of the guys that want to stand back and let everybody else do the job? You know, the old saying, you know, 90% of the work's done by 10% of the people. Well, I've never been one to stand back. You know, if, for example, if the coleslaw needs to be made, I'll get in there and I, I do this coleslaw. And then my father-in-law, he said, you know, after about a year, he said, you need to go buy your own stove. You need to start cooking. You know, don't, don't expect because you're the young guy that you're not ever going to be expected to cook. You know, so I started cooking. Now I'm, I do 99% of the shore lunches I do, I'm one of the cooks. But I don't mind prepping the fish or making the coleslaw, doing the beans, whatever we need to do. It's got to be done. And you shouldn't stand around and wait for somebody to tell you what needs to be done. Could you explain a little bit more about what a shore lunch is? And if you know the history, how that got kind of ingrained in the Homosassa culture? Well, I think as far as it being ingrained, I've got pictures of one of the old, old guides I never even got to fish with. And um, they literally, they didn't have Coleman stoves. They would build a fire on the island, place rocks around it, put skillet on it, and they cook. And I've got pictures of that. How long ago would have that been? Back in the back in probably the late thirties and the forties. But one of and getting back to the Atlanta Club, traditionally that was one of their things. They all loved to come out, you know, you departure time's eight o'clock. They didn't get in a hurry. They may meander out to the boat at eight fifteen. Let's go catch some fish for lunch. Let's go have a nice shore lunch, which consists of fresh you know, your fresh caught fish is cleaned right there. All right, you got fried fish, you got hush puppies. Um, they would actually, you know, the ladies at the club there, they would actually have a shore lunch box made up for you. I mean, they would have a boiled egg for appetizers. We would fry bacon for appetizers and hush puppies. And then you got your coleslaw, your beans, and it's a full meal. I mean, it's, I ain't never seen anybody go away hungry. <laughs> and it's not only that, while we're prepping the food, they're all gathered around talking about, you know, what they did that morning fishing and who caught this, who caught that, and who caught the biggest red, who caught the most trout, whatever. And it's, it's, it's really a good social hour for them. And it's been a longstanding tradition with the Atlanta Club, and we have introduced it to, introduced it to other customers who say, hey, yeah, I'd like to try that, you know. So they do it, and now they're bringing family and friends to do it you know and we go to an island out there and it's it's just a very popular thing and i know that you're a really serious fisherman and you love to get out and get on fish and you take that very serious but something that i think josh and i were talking about on the way over too that that's really cool is that you also at the same time you care about customers having the most fun that they can possibly have and you do really well on hospitality could you just kind of talk a little bit more about what hospitality looks like when you have a client or a customer on the boat? Well, one thing, hospitality is, is you're, 
you're working for them. You're catering to them. And I don't mean a bunch of butt kissing and all that. I'm talking about for just something as simple as if they're hot and sweating, offer them, hey, can I get you a water, you know? Um, you know, or I had a lady one time, she got overheated and, and I told him, I said, listen, we got to go for a boat ride, get some wind on her to cool her down, or I'm going to have to take her in. And it was just, she wasn't used to the heat, but keeping an eye on them or is the back of their neck getting sunburned reminding them, Hey, you need to put some sunscreen on, um, just looking out for them. Cause really in the guide business, you got serious fishermen that look at, okay, it's all about what they put in a box. That is a dying breed. It's not. It's about the the quantity of the trip, not the, you know, the, I mean, the quality of the trip, not the quantity. Um, basically, and I've heard other guys refer it to as we're in the entertainment business. They have a good time. They'll come back. For example, if dad brings mom and the kids, if mama don't have a good time, they ain't coming back. Mm-hmm. If the kids are bored, they're not coming back. But if you and I really cater to the kids when I have kids in the boat, and I'll tell Dad, here, here's a rod and reel. You know how to fish. You step back here. You do this. I'm gonna work with the kids. We're gonna catch fish, and you better hustle because these kids are gonna outfish you. <laughs> and and that's the object. Is nothing makes a kid feel better than to catch the biggest or the most. And are, are there any special things that you do with kids that you feel like really help them have a great time on the boat? Well, the, the first thing that I want to do, number one, is teach them how to cast properly. And I have a theory on, you know, the proper way to cast a spinning rod. It's, it may not fit for you. It may not fit for Josh. It may not fit for nobody else. It fits for me. And I try to teach them, you know, when you've got four people lined up in a boat you can't throw sidearm. You got to throw over the top of your head. I teach them how to do that. I teach them a release point, you know, and then I teach them, you know, I, you got to, we're in six feet of water here. So when your jig hits the water, shut your bail, count to three or five. It depends on how, what size jig head I'm using the sink rate. And I, and I, I'm more or less teaching them. It's not just, here's a rod, good luck. And when they hook a fish, you know, you don't have to make a big deal over a grown-ups fish. Yeah. But when a kid catches a fish, you make a big deal out of it. You tell him how nice that fish is. It may only be legal by a half inch, but to him, it's a it's a monster. And that makes so much sense. That's why you were hooping and hollering when Josh caught that six inch jack yesterday. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> well, Josh was like, "Wait a minute." <laughs> but what? So so with kids, you know, you're explaining to them, "Hey, you're gonna let it. You're gonna close the bail. You're gonna let it." for X amount of seconds, we're trying to get it to this depth of the water and just talking them through all the different things, making a big deal about it. But you said you teach them casting and we've talked to a couple other people about just helping clients, you know, understand how to better cast. Do you, do you have a, a set thing that you do to walk people through that? Like, do you take them somewhere and well, what I'll do is I'll demonstrate when we first get okay. to our first spot of the morning, I'll say, guys, this is what, this is what the fish have been doing. This is what I've been doing to catch them. And I'll demonstrate my cast. And a lot of these guys, you know, now if it's a regular customer that I have fished for a number of trips, I know he can fish. He doesn't need that. But the new guy that I don't know how well he can fish, and I tell him right up front, is listen, I'm not trying to insult you. What I'm trying to do is make the best of your day, and this is what's going to work for my style of fishing. My style of fishing may not be the same as yours, even though we get the same results, but that's what works for me. 
and uh, you know it's not just kids sometimes that you need to teach how to cast I mean you get the family that came to Florida to go see Mickey Mouse and they're doing this that and the other and then they they pick up a brochure somewhere or they see something on it hey let's go to Homicide and go fishing well they may not be fishermen or they may be from up north and they're used to ice fishing not that there's ice there year-round but they may not fish but say they only fish two or three times a year you just need a little refresher that's all and you're working with a pretty wide range of different levels because being located next to tampa and near orlando i mean unlike some of the guides that are in a little bit more remote areas where like where my dad guides out of if you're going there you're probably going there to fish and so you're probably working usually with some some more tools we get some last minute anglers is what i call them last minute you know it's an afterthought on their vacation but homosassa is relatively remote the the good thing about it is you know you got the parkway right there i mean literally from my doorstep to tampa international is an hour and 15 minutes Mm. it's just an hour and 20 hour and 25 to orlando so there's people that will get up and drive that hour hour and a half to go fishing and some of them only fish for a half day so that way they they did a full day of stuff and the driving's included in it but um i've got people i had a guy from england that he exclusively came here for tarpon in may or june Mm. um which now that's all i do in may and june i don't i put my trout gear up i put my big boat up i'm in my flats boat may and june if you want to go red fishing i'll be glad to refer you to a guy that does a tarpon fish but other than that if you go with me in May or June, you're going tarpon fishing. Could you talk us through how you like the transition from one season to the next? Because I know that you you fish year-round, but obviously you don't tarpon fish year-round and travel around with them. You you do redfish, snook. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we um, – our seasons here, you know, obviously in the wintertime, it can be hit or miss like you guys. We planned that y'all got coming down here a month ago, and I, I planned it on days where we had some good afternoon tides. We could do the podcast in the morning – go and then we get a cold front i mean it hasn't been cold in four or five weeks and now it was actually at my buddy's house this morning i was talking to him on the phone it was 28 degrees at his house this morning Mm. so when you get a 12 degree drop in water temperature that kind of puts the quietus on the fish for a little bit it's going to take a few days for them to adjust and that's why we went where we went yesterday afternoon you know up there at the head of the river in the spring water which the water temperature up there was what nine degrees warmer than downriver and played with some jacks um that wasn't the original plan that was plan b um it the seasons this time of year you know we're pre-spring and the trout is going to be the big thing now for the next month um there are a lot of redfish here but a lot of undersized redfish i can i can go out and you know we may catch 15 redfish might only have two keepers but um as spring progresses you know you got march you got your trout fishing and then into april it's warming up you're going to start seeing some early cobia Um, you might even see a few early tarpon i mean i've hooked tarpon in april it's very rare to hook them but um, then you know after about the first week or so of may when it warmed up the water temperature's right and them tarpon start showing up Um, actually last year they showed up early I don't know what they're going to do this year with the way the weather is. There's no telling. But um, you can't go after them if you're not here to go after them. And you have different boats and, like, 
Yeah. Can you talk us through that? You got two different main boats that you charter out of, depending on the season. And right. I got you're... a, uh, I've got an old pro line, what they call the old flatback, that I customized and rebuilt in 09. It's phenomenal. I mean, everybody, that, I have never heard a complaint on this boat. It's comfortable. It's roomy. It's unbelievable. I mean, that back deck. Yeah. Right. Putting that back deck on the boat like I did actually allowed, which I, I, I take four anglers if need be. I prefer three. Um, but I can take four comfortably. That fourth man can stand back there and nobody gets in anybody's way. And of course my flats boat, I got a 16 foot, uh, silver King signature. And that's one of the old classics. I guess kind of like me, one of the old classics, but, um, I have had anglers in that boat. You know, we've caught a lot of tarpon out of that boat. Now it's not one of the new hybrids that is real light. You know, so it's still, you got to pull it. When you go to pull it, you feel it, but I'm still young enough to do that. So I, I don't see any reason to go buy a 60 or $70,000 boat right now when both of the boats I got are in very good shape and they work. Could you talk us through too, a little bit about how you got the trolling motor set up on the back? Well, the trolling motor set up on the back, the dual trolling motors is, is notorious for home assassin. Uh, there's really nowhere else in the state or anywhere in the country actually that uses the dual trolling motors and It's actually now with the new remote bow mounts Some of the guys are even phasing them out and just going to the single bow mount and, and a lot of it's for weight um, Obviously putting two trolling motors on the stern is a lot heavier than putting one bow mount on the bow um, It's just that's the way you tarpon fish homeless acid. That's the way it's always been done because you will cover a lot of ground. I mean, from from point A, where we start in the morning, to point B, where we might wind up in the afternoon, is eight or nine miles. And I have literally been on my platform and, you know, just easing along with the trolling motors that whole time, never crank up the big motor. And you got two jacuzzi buttons that are mounted on the... Air switches. Air switches. Yeah, yeah. Originally, they originated. It was an air switch from a jacuzzi, how that got... Developed. People got tired of you guys stealing them off jacuzzis around here. And no, actually, actually, there was a uh, catalog, I guess. But my mentor, which we're going to talk about later, uh, Nat Raglan, is uh, is the one that helped me get set up with my trolling motors. He just he was probably one of the pioneers for the foot switch system. And there's a lot of people that take credit for that, but uh, I think I think Nat was one of the originals. So. Their switch, they used to use my first my first set of foot switches were actually electric switches. Um, their switch system, there's air doesn't corrode, so it's it's a better system. Can, can you kind of go into the need of that of the the dual the dual trolling motor system, which th this is the only place I've ever seen them. Obviously, the the need the need. Where did you guys find the need for that? I mean, because obviously your guys' tarpon fishing is a little bit different than where we're at, and maybe even down you know Boca Grande, the Keys, where there's a lot of you know, you got got guys just staked up. You guys are moving pretty much the whole time you're fishing. Yeah, well, until you get on a school. Is that correct? Yes. Well, like I say, point A, wherever we it may be, wherever we may start for the morning, um, we get into an area, and you basically you're just sitting waiting to see what happens. And then you, if you see a school of fish, you know, three, four, five hundred yards away, you don't crank up your big motor, so you just take your trolling motors and you slowly ease your way that way you watch the fish 
And obviously, you know, if they're heading south, you want to get south of them and intercept them. You don't want to chase them, um, which is a mistake that a lot of people make. But uh, I learned a long time ago, it's it's easier to catch a happy fish than a spooked fish. But mm-hmm. um, we we another reason, the dual trolling motors, say you get hooked up. You may be around other boats. The trolling motors will spook fish less than an outboard if you crank it up and have to chase him. If you hook a hot fish, he's going to smoke a lot of line out. you got to recover that line. Dual trolling motors will help you do that versus one trolling motor. And, um, another, and versus cranking your motor up and, and running that fish down and oh, basically yeah. blowing out a whole school that right. maybe two or three other boats were trying to get on. Right. That makes a lot of do sense. Do you think that the, that setup works better than having a single on the bow? Well, I tell you, for fly fishing, that single on the bow causes problems at times. Yep. You get a fly line wrapping around it. Uh, there's not a lot of days when there's not a breeze. And um, I, it's, you know, it's not on the bow. They're, you know, they're on the back of the boat. They're not in your way. And you can get down and adjust the speed of them. You know, to you know, the slower you move on tarpon, the better off you are. Um, I have a buddy of mine that that uses a bow mount that is quite successful, um, but he's it's a constant thing on his mind, you know, about the fly line getting wrapped around the trolling motor. I actually have a system on my boat to where I can put a bow mount, and I have when I'm fishing deep water, like if they're offshore or in a, in a deep channel somewhere or whatever. When I, it's too deep for me to pole, but yet I can use that remote trolling motor to turn the boat and move around to get in position. And I've had tr- fly lines get tangled around the trolling motor, and I've had fly lines get chewed up by the trolling motor prop. And that's, at $90 a fly line, that can get expensive. That's for sure. Um, and I don't want to stick on tarpon forever, but even though I could, and I hope people that listen to this podcast don't get mad at me asking this question because I ask it to every tarpon guy that we that we talk to. Can you give us an idea of everybody that I've asked has a different opinion on how these fish migrate from where they start to where they end? I know you kind of have a theory that maybe they're all kind of offshore and push kind of north and east into everybody and then west to, you know, Mississippi, Louisiana and all that. Some people think they start in the Keys and just swim that coast all the way, all the way north without giving away all your secrets. (laughs) Well, I can, what, I can what's kind of your opinion on that? I can tell you this. There's, there's, there's subspecies of tarpon. Mm-hmm. You get your smaller tarpon, and then they get the big ones they call the giant tarpon. I believe they both come from different areas. The smaller fish, I do believe, migrate up and down the coast, and I think some big fish do too. I also believe that these big fish, that nobody knows where they come from. All I know is that when they show up in Homosassa, they show up from the west-northwest. And I have seen years, I've heard of guys that are 25 miles north of us fishing them two weeks before we get them. Now, where did they come from? Did they come from the deep part of the Gulf? Did they come from the Mississippi River? I think, in all honesty, it's kind of weird to say that the fish, and some people don't believe they migrate, but they do migrate. All right, we've seen that. We've seen them show up on the south end of where I fish and then wind up where I fish, and then wind up, you know, a week later north of where I fish. Um, I had a buddy of mine catch one on the fly here about 15, 16 years ago that had a circle hook in its mouth. That came from Boca Grand Pass. I would bet money on it. Mm -hmm. Um, It either came from Boca Grand or Tampa Bay. 
So that fish swam up the coast. This past year, uh, a lot of people probably remember how warm it was in November. We had a push of tarpon in November that was just as good as the push we get in June. And they were headed south. They were only here for a couple, three days, and they moved on. And maybe that red tide pushed them inshore. I don't know. Everybody's got a theory, like you said. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> I, I know that they show up certain times of the year when the water temperature gets right. They're here for so long, which Homosassa has one of the shortest seasons of anybody, you know, as far as when the push of fish is here. We basically got May and June. You go to Boca Grande, they're already fishing for tarpon, and this is March. I mean, and as warm as it was in February, I, they were fishing for them there. Um, where you guys are from up there in the Panhandle, you start seeing them as early sometimes as May, and you got them through August, September. Mm-hmm. Um, how many you got in September, I don't know. I'm not a biologist, like I said. But number one, there's a lot of tarpon. It's not the same school of 500 swimming around the state. So the migration thing, I do know some fish move. I've watched them, you know, like on an outgoing tide. When they leave a certain spot here, I can go five miles north and find them there the next day. Or I can even go further north than that. Um, There's a number of fish people don't realize just how many tarpon you know everybody talks about homosassa homosassa a lot of people don't realize how many tarpon are just out of crystal river you know and not trying to give away any spots but i can tell you right now if you got a tarpon nose on you and you go out of crystal river and if you know how to find a tarpon you'll find them but um i've got a buddy of mine that i think he hooked 12 one day up there mm-hmm. that's it's, a pretty good day anywhere it's just so interesting to me you know if they do travel straight south and north, and then you know once they hit that hook, start start moving west, it's it's interesting that where we're at two and a half three hours away north of you, we see fish the same time that you do. You do, and it's just that's that's kind of what my where I was getting. It's just crazy to to think that. So well, you're three hours away at sixty miles an hour, mm-hmm. you know, so they're forty five hours away at three or four mile an hour, whatever the math works out. But I will tell you this, people talk about it, and I used to believe that the tarpon did a complete circle. I mean, they come up the coast of Florida, you know, around Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, coast of Texas, and then wound up back down at the Yucatan. And I think some still do. But after last year and what I saw last year here, I also believe, and you talk to the guys in Boca Grande, in May, June, and July when those fish are all headed north, in September, they're seeing fish headed south. They swim so far north, and then they turn around and come back. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part of the water temperature, that thermocline. Once They're going to follow that thermocline, and when it changes, they're going to move. And when it starts dropping, they're going to turn and go back south. Um, then again, I ain't a biologist. But well, if I think about it. You in Holiday Inn Express one time. I, twice. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of moving, that was something else we want to talk about, not just with tarpon, but just any fish in general. And this is guides and this is just regular, you know, avid anglers. But when you're on a spot and maybe, you know, based off everything that you know, the tide's right for that spot, the temperature's right for that spot, but it's just not happening. How do you think through like sitting out at a spot 
or moving on to check other places? I mean, could you walk us through how you like to think through checking different spots if things aren't going your way? Well, first off, I'm kind of old school on that is the running. I don't like the running gun system. And, and, and really the running gun system will spook more fish than it'll catch. But my father-in-law told me years ago, you know the trout are here. Now you got to figure out when they're going to bite. And they're going to bite on a certain tide. In the spring of the year, for some reason, the fish here like the incoming. If you, you know, so, and here's another thing. You also got to wait on the tide. Let the water get to where the fish are comfortable and feel safe. If you go in there early and spook them, that's what you've done is spooked them. Um, I have a good friend that's passed on now. There was a spot here. He loved to fish that spot. He, he could go out there, and he'd tell you, he said, I can go out there and catch a couple, three trout any time. But he had just started guiding here and moved here. I had been fishing that spot for years, and I would wait on the tide, and I could go there and catch a limit because I'd let the you know, water get high enough the fish felt comfortable. They weren't spooky. You know, you can't beat your trolling motor on the rocks and expect a fish to hang around. Um, but he could always go there and catch one or two, and he felt good about it. So everybody has a theory on that, too. Do you and, have a way that you – do you just kind of try to put it in the memory bank, or do you write down different things with tides and seasons? I used to write it down. I used to keep a diary, and the one thing that I learned about the diary is that things change. Mm. Now, a generality – you know, we know in the spring of the year that the trout, and these are some of your big females that should be being released, um, but you know these big trout are going to get on that shallow water, and they're going to sun because the water's been cold. That shallow water, the incoming tide, they get up there, they sun. And if you play it right, you can go up there and you can catch some nice fish. In the fall of the year, the water's hot. So what they're going to do is they're going to drop off in troughs. You won't see as many in a real – you'll see a few – in that shallow water but you know i've always said you spring on you know you spring in the shallow water in you know spring and you fall in the ditches in the fall um in august you know i've got some people that want to go trout fishing in august which is the hottest part of the year i'm gonna have to you know take them out into seven to ten eight you know even 12 foot of water and there you're using heavier jig heads you're it's a totally different tactic that i would use Say, say the weather was pretty and we fished this afternoon on that incoming, it would be a totally different tactic than what we are going to do, would do today had we been able to fish. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's you go to a spot, you got a plan, but you always got to have plan B. And uh, it's – you got to be versatile. You cannot be one-dimensional. You know, if you're one-dimensional, you're going to have a lot of free time on your hands. Switching gears a little bit, something that we were also wanting to bring up is we know that you mentioned this earlier, you have a great relationship with Nat Raglan, and we've done a podcast with Nat that we're excited to release. Could you talk a little bit about, one, what the mentor relationship can look like between an older angler and a younger angler, and just to elaborate a little bit more, what were the things that Nat did that helped you the most, and what were the things that you did that you felt like positioned yourself to get invested in by somebody like that? Well, number one, Nat Raglan is an icon. Um, he's one of the pioneers. He is one of the nicest gentlemen you'll ever meet. And I think as I was getting into tarpon fishing, 
Nat was still coming up here from Marathon, staying at Tradewinds. He was bringing customers up here for about a month, the peak, you know, the peak season, whatever you want to call it. But Nat saw my enthusiasm and my eagerness to learn because I, I was a sponge. I mean, if the, guy, the older guys got together and they were talking about that, I'd, I'd stand there and I'd keep my mouth shut and I was listening, trying to learn. And, and, and I think Nat just took a liking to me. He, uh, he wound up eating dinner at my house. I mean, he, like I said, he set me up, really set me up with my first good trolling motor set. And just to give you a little bit what kind of person he is, he guided all day. I guided that day. Now I'm in my 20s. He's, I don't know, in his 50s, early 60s. I don't know exactly how old he was at the time. Um, we worked on my boat till midnight that night to get those trolling motors right. He didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And when I try, went to pay him, he only let me pay for parts, would not charge me labor. He did that to help me. He passed it along. And that's what a good mentor does is he passes along knowledge, information, help, whatever it may take. I learned more about fly fishing on, over the phone with him than I learned on the boat. I, you know, we did never get to fish as much as we wanted to, but we did fish when we could. But asking him questions, picking his brain, and a lot about the number one, you know, he, he the man ultimately respects the fishery. And, um, but he, his clients, you know, the way he treated his clients, I mean, all of his clients, I never saw anybody that didn't like Nat. I mean, if you can't like Nat Raglan, you got a problem. But, um, he mentored me. He helped me. He taught me how to tie tarpon flies. Um, and he did most of that after a full day of fishing. Most after of your, work. Most of your interactions with him, at least when he was on the water, would just be him making time at the end of the day to hang out with you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, there at Trade Winds, there was a number of guides that, you know, rented a slit there during tarpon season that were from out of town. And everybody got together, you know, some would go to dinner and everything like that. I went to dinner with them a few times, uh, probably more than a few. Um, and I, I would tell my wife, I was, hey, I'm learning, you know. He's helping me with this. He's helping me with that. He's the one that taught me how to tie the Bimini twist, the IGFA leader. He's the one that taught me how to do that properly. And um, he's, he was adamant about it. He never, he never tied a tarpon fly on that was not tied properly you know, with the IGFA leader. There are people out there that says you catch a tarpon and if it's not on an IGFA leader, it doesn't count. Well, that's an opinion. Um, there's a lot of people out there that you're not interested in a world record. That's fine. Um, I have never intentionally killed a tarpon in, in 25 years of tarpon fishing. You know, I've had a shark get them, which you can't avoid. You try to, but you don't always avoid it. Um, but on that same token, I do carry a tarpon tag on my boat. If that angler says they want to pursue a world record, they're paying you for that day. It is their choice, not mm-hmm. yours. Yeah. I've heard God say, well, I wouldn't let one kill one. Well, that's his choice. You know, everybody makes choices in life. And, you know, not that I want to kill a tarpon because I could care less about killing one. But if an angler said, Jimmy, this is, you know, and we agree that, hey, this is a world record fish. You know, what's the difference between killing a world record tarpon or a world record redfish or a world record trout, you know, or a world record whitetail? People do it. People pursue that. And that's that person's right. But uh, Nat 
and he had that figured out. I mean, we talked about that many times. And and uh, I made a comment one time. I said, well, I just won't take them. He said, so you'd rather sit at home? He said, what's the chances? He said, world records aren't caught every day. You know, matter of fact, Billy Pate's record on the 188 pound, I think it stood for over 20 years. You know, it's not something that happens every day. I mean, that's a once in a lifetime for very few people, mm-hmm. you know, so... And just to flip that question upside down a little bit. So you were eager, you were willing to, at the end of your day, you were willing to go and to learn. And I know there's that saying, a, a full glass can't receive water. You just continue to be a glass that had space to, to learn. What are some mistakes that younger anglers make that shut them down from actually being able to learn and get this great information from older anglers and guides? The first mistake is for a younger angler to think he knows it all. And I know some of them. Um, I was thinking about this prior to coming over and doing this podcast is I know some young anglers. All right. I've been guiding 30 years. And you can still learn something. I can still learn something. Anybody can, if you're willing to and with an open mind, learn. When you get to the point that you think you're so good that you don't need anybody's help, the people that are willing to help you, they'll back off and say, you know what? You're on your own, buddy. You know, learn the hard way. Mm. You know, my, my grandmother used to say, God will get, is going to get your attention. You, you want him to use a two-by-four or a feather? Well, <laughs> it's if a young person's willing to learn, I'm willing to help them. And I, I will. Um, if they're one of the know-it-alls, let them go on. Let them do their thing, you know. Let them learn the hard way. And that reputation can get out real, real quick, fast. Real quick. Yep. If it, it, Yeah. That's and that's one thing too. I uh, you know, I probably I feel like I call you and and Farrier and Chip and other people that I know way too much and pretty much every it, guy it's we've one ever of the hung out with yeah it's like <laughs> it's like listen these guys know way more than I'll probably ever know but I'm gonna try to get as much out of them as I can. How, is there is there like coming looking at looking at it from your standpoint? Is there too much or too often that that guy can can call you and. I mean, I'm sure at some point you can just say, hey, man, listen, you're calling me too much. I'm trying to hang out with my wife. But Well, yeah, you know, you could – I guess a person, if you're, uh, okay. what you're saying, could be a pest. But the way I look at it, if somebody's willing to learn and listen, and, and, and it all goes back to there's a, there's a level of respect. You don't call me at 830 at night mm-hmm. when it's family time, you know. So as far as that goes, I'm not, – not that I – let's just say that I know anything, but I've been in business for 30 years. I've done something right somewhere along the line. Um, even chip, I mean, chip's a, a good friend of mine. I met him through my, that other business I was talking about when he was in law enforcement. And, uh, you know, we've remained friends over the years. He's a good fisherman in his own right. He doesn't need my help, but he still, he'll call and say, Hey, what do you think of this? Or what do you think of this piece of equipment? He's not doing it because he doesn't know about equipment. He's doing it because I've had the experience of using that equipment. What is my experience? What can that tell him? You know, I'm not teaching him nothing. He's wanting my opinion on something. And same with him. I mean, he's he knows a lot more about the internet than I do. So I'm picking his brain there. I mean, it's a two, you know, it's a two way street. Yep. Well, one last question we kind of wanted to talk about was something that's come up in a few conversations we've had with people throughout the state. So you guys have a great guide association and group of guides here in, in Homosassa. What does it look like for somebody to put together a network like that? 
and what are some of the benefits and things that that really uh, help that make the fishery and the whole experience successful? Well, first, let me give you a little history of the Homosassa Guides Association. It was started in 1951, I believe. And my grandfather, my father-in-law, and, of course, my father-in-law's dad and, and brothers of his, they were all charter members. They, they started that, you know, to, to improve the quality of the, uh, the guides. Um, we kind of police our own. I mean, right now we've got 25 or 26 members in the guide association right now with a waiting list of guys that we're wanting in. Um, just because you have a captain's license and on a boat doesn't mean you can get in. I mean, you got to, you got to be able to show your knowledge of the area. You've got to be able to, number one, you can't have somebody complaining about you at the dock because of your attitude or the way you treat a customer. I mean, we do police and I'll say that again. We do police our own. Um, do you guys have fines or how do you guys like to do that? Well, number one, what we've done is. It's, it's all basically a gentleman's agreement um, that, number one, if you don't maintain a certain level of professionalism, we'll kick you out. I mean, you know, um, you're, you're going to be respectful to people. And it's not just on the boat. I mean, it's on the street. If you're, you know, if you're a drunk... And you, you know, and everybody talks about that. That all, that comes back, well, he's a member of the Guide Association or something like that. Not saying that we've had that happen. I'm just using that as an example. Um, we had a guy years ago, back when I was president of the Guide Association, that we let him in. He wanted to be a member. We let him in. Um, and he barely got in on the vote. I mean, he barely had the majority. There were a few guys that had reservations. And once you're voted into the guide association you're put on probation and you're on probation until the membership feels that you come off probation um and what it is basically it's just maintaining a level of professionalism but getting back to this guy he claimed he knew the area and on a numerous occasions he was seeing where he ran aground and it was more than once i mean it happens i don't care who you are if you misjudge the tide just a little bit here, you can get hung up and you got to wait on the tide to get off. But this guy, it was quite frequently with him. And one of the members, like I said, I was president at the time. And one of the members called me and says, Jimmy, I want you to know, I don't want to shock you tonight. He said, but at the meeting, he said, I'm going to make a motion that he, we terminate his membership. I said, well, before you do that and embarrassing, let me call him. So I called him and I told him what was going on. And the guy said, you know, Maybe I don't fit in, you know. He And he got a little bit indignant about it. I said, listen, I don't want no hard feelings. But basically, your lack of knowledge, you, you do not have the knowledge that you portrayed to have, that you claim to have. You know, you, you're not, you're not going to be a member after tonight. You're going to get voted out. I said, the best thing for you to do is not come to the meeting and let's just, you know, no hard feelings. Let's, let's be friends, but... It just ain't working out, and that's the way we handled that. But, and to say we rule with an iron fist, no, we don't. Each guy in the association is his own businessman. He has his own rates. Um, 
we do, um, basically all of us here are probably within $50 of each other. Um, we, we, we don't undercut each other. Um, and, and, and here's the reason there's not a lot of guys associations because there's guys out there that have the all about, all about me. It's all about me. And if you're that type of person, you would never fit in here because this is kind of like a fraternity. We look out for each other. For example, I had a call this morning for a guide trip from one of the other members. And I'm busy that particular day, so I passed it on to another member who, unfortunately, was busy. But um, we'll find that person a guide, and we go out of the way. If I had a lady from Bozeman, Montana last night call me on the phone. Well, y'all heard the conversation mm -hmm. going to dinner. I'm going to do whatever I can to help her because we want her business down here. And it's whether it's with me or with one of my brother guides, and that's the way we look at it. It's a brotherhood, and we look out for each other. We do community things. Last Sunday, we, we do a big cookout here. The Guide Association puts on a big cookout. It is a basic shore lunch open to the general public. We charge so much a plate, all right, and 50% of the money net profit that's made after expenses, we donate to the Boys and Girls Club, the uh, Learning Center here, to the school, mm -hmm. and the other 50% we use for marketing. And it's, it's and everybody, I mean, we, we actually donate money to the fireworks show um, in July, for the 4th of July. We donate to the boat parade, Christmas, you know, boat parade, and stuff like that. I mean, we're not putting this money in our pockets. It's community relations. It's to show, hey, you know what? These guys not only make live here and make a living here, they love being here. And if you don't fit into that mold, you need not to apply. Like I say, we've got a waiting list right now of about five or six guys wanting in. What's the benefits of being in a guide association? Shared knowledge, shared some marketing, you said. Yeah. For example, I had a call this morning from one of our younger guides. And he said, I got a guide tomorrow. He, what do you think this front did? And, and I told him what my experience was and where I had been catching fish prior to it. He said, I didn't even think about that, you know. And, and it's because it's a big area, you know, it's scattered out. And um, if I have it guided in a few days or something like that, I'll call one of them and say, hey, I don't want your hot spot. Just point me in the right direction. You know, where's a good starting spot? Or, you know, and I've, I'm not ashamed to say that, hey, Sometimes I feel like I'm in a donut. Hey, point me in the right direction. What color are you using, man? You're over there smoking them, and I'm 200 yards away not getting a bite. You know, what's going on? Uh, but I've also shared that same information mm -hmm. with others, and, and that's what it is. When you share inf information, and I, and I like I say, you ain't got to tell everybody your hot spots. I mean, the area is a good-sized area, but it's only so big. Yeah. And a number of us fish the same spots on a daily basis it's uh for example here's something else that really gets under my crawl and through the guide association we have discussed this at meetings and stuff like that that if if you're on spot a and i was wanting to go there and you beat me there i keep going i'm not going to bother you you beat me there at that particular moment in time it's your spot mm -hmm. but if i'm sitting there i expect the same out of you keep going and you guys will, if, if somebody's in the guide association, that's a way to have 25 people, even though they have their own unique businesses, being on the same page with some code of conduct, 
sharing some resources for marketing, which obviously can help everyone. Everybody has that shared interest that you do want people thinking that Home Assassin is a great place to fish and that it's still a great place to fish. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, it's still one of the top spots in the state. And getting back to the marketing, the Homosassa Guide Association itself has a website. Mm -hmm. And you can go to that website and you can you can scroll, you can surf, you can look through that website and you can look at every guide in the association mm -hmm. because there's a link to our website, which I'm in the process of getting my website redone, yep. you know, and when we get it done, it's it'll be on there. Um, and that's a great tool, though, because there's a stamp of credibility on that. That's right. You're not going to yeah. be on the Homosassa Guide Association website if you're not qualified to be there. Yeah. It's kind of like another feather in the hat, so to speak. Somebody calls, they're looking for a guide. They know they're getting somebody with some credibility, not just some Joe Blue off the street. Exactly. Yeah. It's going to, you know put them on a flat here's a pop and cork and a gulp you know and some people they're great they're, at you know <laughs> their their website and great at their trip advisor and great at their social media and right on you should be mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that at the end of the day you're not going to be stuck out on a sand flat <laughs> because they might have taken some good photos but they didn't realize they didn't see that one coming now you're stuck out there so I mean, that, that, that seems, hopefully we'll see people just kind of sharing more and more information about associations and how guides can work together. And that's one of the things that we were hoping with this is that it would start to build and bridge people together and be able to learn from each other. And nobody's trying to upload any GPS hotspots, but to be able to all be able to be the best we can. And I appreciate you for coming on the podcast. How can people stay up to date with what you're doing? Well, um, you can like me on Facebook, uh, Jim Long. Um, my website is homosassoutfitters.com. I am learning Facebook. Mm -hmm. I'm going, I am in the process of learning Instagram. Uh, it's just, you know, 30 years of doing this, I've always felt that word of mouth is the best yep. form of advertisement. My theory is the first time you go with a guide is to catch fish. The next time is because you enjoyed fishing with them. And I, I keep that. I mean, that's right on the tip of my tongue, and I try to keep that in my brain. That I don't guide anybody one time. I want to guide them multiple times. Well, that's great. Well, we'll make sure to include a link to the website in the show notes. And thanks for giving us some time, as always. Thanks, Mr. Jimmy. You're welcome, boys. Uncle Jimmy, the dinosaur. Yeah. All right, y'all have a good one. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Captain's Collective. We hope that these podcasts are helping you as we continue to dig for knowledge from guides and other industry leaders. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to share it. It helps a ton. We hope to see you soon. This is The Captain's Collective.